Listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. Corey Yelland is away for the next several episodes, so I'll be hosting this uh, by myself. Attitudes in the United States about marijuana are certainly changing. This was evident on Tuesday in the nine states that had marijuana on the ballot, either for recreational or medical use. Nearly every vote passed. Probably the most significant was approval for recreational use of marijuana in California, the most populous U.S. state. Now all states on the U.S. West Coast allow the use of recreational marijuana. And the Lieutenant Governor of California, Gavin Newsom, said, I think it's the beginning of the end of the drug war on marijuana in the United States. I think we'll have repercussions internationally, particularly in Mexico and Latin America, and there are a million people who tomorrow can begin the process of clearing their records. As many listeners are aware, the government of Canada has promised to legalize marijuana in May of next year. Having been in use for thousands of years, it raises the question of why cannabis, marijuana, became prohibited in the first place. Because there are still millions and millions of people who continue to believe cannabis is a dangerous drug, I want to give you the historical background on this plant, why it has been demonized. In his short book, Understanding Medical Marijuana, author Gui Rabinsky offers a wonderful overview in one of his chapters titled, Why is Marijuana Illegal? And I want to share that with you. You can also go on Gui's website. Gui is spelled G-O-O-E-Y. GooeyRabinsky, R-A-B-I-N-S-K-I dot com, and you can get a copy of the short book. It's only about uh, 35 pages. In it, he states that cannabis has been illegal for less than 1% of the time that it has been in use by humans, primarily for medical purposes and not euphoria. Ironically, the first marijuana law in the United States in Jamestown Colony, Virginia, in 1619, was one requiring farmers to grow it. Similar laws existed in the Virginia colony between 1763 and 1767. Hemp, the industrial form of the cannabis plant that features few or no euphoria-producing flowers, was so common in colonial America that citizens used it as legal tender and could even pay their taxes with it. A hundred years later, The U.S. Census of 1850 documented more than 8,000 hemp plantations of at least 2,000 acres each. One of the first municipal laws banning cannabis was a 1914 ordinance in El Paso, Texas, supposedly intended to curb violence. Now, a fight had erupted between a Mexican, accusedly under the influence of marijuana, and a white citizen. The real purpose of the law, however was to discriminate against Mexican immigrants, not the herb in their pocket. Mexican men had begun to socialize with white women, much to the chagrin of the conservative white leaders and businessmen who ran El Paso. 
Because Mexicans used marijuana, its prohibition gave American authorities a convenient excuse to deport them. Similarly, opium was banned in the United States in 1909 to, in part, discriminate against Chinese immigrants. A Texas senator in an official statement from the floor of the Senate proclaimed, All Mexicans are crazy, and this stuff, marijuana, is what makes them crazy. When Montana banned marijuana in 1927, the Butte Standard quoted the legislator as saying, When some beet-field peon takes a trace of this stuff, he thinks he's just been elected president of Mexico, so he starts to execute all of his political enemies. The first law in the U.S. banning marijuana was possibly based on religious intolerance. In 1910, a group of Mormons from Utah supposedly traveled to Mexico, returning to Salt Lake City with marijuana. The leaders of the church, not pleased with the adoption of cannabis by some of its members, banned it, although no official documentation of this exists within the Mormon church. The influence of the Mormons was significant enough that some historians believe church policies sometimes became state laws. Thus, marijuana was outlawed in Utah as part of the sweeping poisons and narcotic drugs legislation in 1915. In the following years, several other states banned marijuana. Wyoming in 1915, Texas in 1919, Iowa, Nevada, Oregon, Washington, Arkansas in 1923, and Montana in 1927 all enacted laws prohibiting the possession of cannabis that intended in large part to discriminate against Mexican-Americans. In 1913, California banned a variety of narcotics, including opium, but excluded marijuana. Ironically, paraphernalia, such as pipes for smoking extracts, tinctures, or other narcotic preparations of hemp or loco weed, were outlawed in the same legislation. Yes, you heard that correctly. A state law referred to cannabis as loco weed. By 1930, nearly 30 of the 48 states had passed laws outlawing the cultivation, sale, and possession of marijuana, and a variety of narcotics, often under the official justification of food and drug purity, a popular progressive movement after the turn of the century. Now, two men are primarily responsible for the modern federal-level legal prohibition of marijuana that has been in existence for the past 79 years. Those two men, Harry Anslinger and William Randolph Hearst. Anslinger was an ambitious government bureaucrat who, in 1930, became director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the precursor to today's Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA. Nepotism was in full force. Anslinger was appointed by his wife's uncle, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon of Mellon Bank, one of the most powerful financial institutions in the world at the time. Hearst was a publishing and timber mogul who owned major newspapers and popular magazines. Think of him as the evil Rupert Murdoch of his day. Hearst, according to one biography, hated minorities and he used his chain of newspapers to aggravate racial tensions at every opportunity. His motives were understandable. He lost 800,000 acres of timberland to Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution. His means of institutionalizing his bigotry, however, were less deserving of empathy. The term marijuana, derived from the Mexican slang marijuana with an H, either purposefully or accidentally misspelled, was first coined in the United States in the 1890s. 
It was popularized by the early 1930s by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and in articles appearing in magazines and newspapers owned by Hearst. Hearst, via his publishing and empire, continually attempted to taint public perception of the plant by leveraging popular prejudice against Mexican-Americans. The Mexican-Spanish term marijuana, with an H, was used to elude the public's existing familiarity and comfort with hemp and the medical application of cannabis tinctures. And by the way, it was not commonly smoked recreational drug at the time. In fact, the terms marijuana with an H and marijuana with a J weren't even included in official dictionaries at the time. If not for the efforts of Anslinger and Hearst, the herb would almost certainly be referred to as cannabis, the Latin name that's most common in Europe, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Anslinger drew upon the social stereotypes and prejudices of the day to stigmatize cannabis. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., he said, and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz and swing, results from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and others. Anslinger also made highly inflammatory and provocative statements involving significant fear-mongering, such as, Marijuana is an addictive drug which produces in its users insanity, criminality, and death. His racist side is revealed by statements such as, Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. He also proclaimed, You smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. Hurst and Hanslinger were supported by Lamont DuPont of the DuPont Chemical Company and a variety of pharmaceutical corporations, all of which had a financial interest in defeating hemp to promote their own products. For example, DuPont began selling rayon, the first man-made fiber, in 1924 and invented nylon, a synthetic competitor to hemp, in 1935. One reason pharmaceutical and petrochemical companies disliked cannabis was because people could grow it themselves. It should be noted that Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary who appointed Anslinger to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the wealthiest man in America at the time, along with Mellon Bank, was a financial backer of DuPont. In February of 1938, Popular Mechanics reported that hemp was the new billion-dollar crop in the United States due entirely to the introduction of mass production harvesting equipment. The hemp decorticator, a farm machine that mechanically separated the fiber of the hemp stock, threatened to make hemp a strong competitor to wood. The decorticator saved massive amounts of labor and made hemp production affordable and practical on a small scale, such as family farms. Capable of yielding up to three crops per year in southern climates, one acre of hemp produces about the same amount of cellulose used to create paper, among other things, as four acres of trees. Amazingly, hemp can be made into about 5,000 different products, from paper, clothing, and food, to fuel and construction timber. The promise of hemp-based products was so great that they threatened to replace those made from petroleum-based petrochemicals, such as synthetic fibers and even gasoline. If you think this was just slightly intimidating to the likes of corporate barons such as Hearst, Mellon, and DuPont, you're right. Billions in profits were at stake for entrenched old-school businesses and their financial backers and cronies. 
Surprisingly, Henry Ford's first Model T automobile was built using hemp plastic panels, not metal, which featured an impact strength 10 times greater than steel. Ford envisioned his car running on fuel made from hemp or other plants. These facts threatened DuPont's petrochemical market share, driven by new synthetic products such as rayon, nylon, cellophane, and oil-based plastics, and Hearst's huge timberland and mill empire. Now, Anslinger, basically the government puppet of corporate barons DuPont and Mellon and Hearst, who had a clear financial interest in defeating the success of hemp, embarked on one of the world's most effective and long-lasting smear campaigns. Now, you might be asking, why did the Popular Mechanics article appear six months following enactment of the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, the law that effectively outlawed marijuana cultivation and possession? It's an interesting question. The law didn't actually outlaw cannabis or hemp, but rather required a special tax stamp to be issued by the U.S. government. And guess what? No tax stamps were ever issued. Now, together these men created a highly inflammatory and anti-marijuana public relations crusade with the goal of making euphoric herb, marijuana, and more importantly its sibling hemp, illegal effectively eliminating it as a competitor to a variety of petrochemical products, which was DuPont's territory, and timber, Hearst's gold mine. Using Anslinger's position within the U.S. government and leveraging Hearst's empire of newspapers and magazines as propaganda outlets, the two concocted outlandish stories, all of which depicted marijuana as being hyperbolically more destructive than what is perceived today as a mild euphoriant that gives its recreational users giggles and the munchies. Their dramatic and sensationalistic stories describe pot as an evil drug that led to murder, rape, and insanity. As early as 1923, Hearst published in the San Francisco Examiner that marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoking marijuana cigarettes for a month and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish, a purer, more potent form of marijuana, makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest-mannered man. In February 1928, a similarly sensational article appeared in the Hearst publication The Examiner, falsely stating that marijuana was known in India as the murder drug, claiming that it was common for a man to catch up a knife and run through the streets, hacking and killing everyone he encountered. Even more outlandish, the article claimed one could grow enough cannabis in a window box to drive the whole population of the United States stark raving mad. The American Magazine, another Hearst publication in its July 1937 issue, published a sensationalized article co-authored by Anslinger entitled Marijuana, Assassin of Youth, which described a young Florida man who murdered his family an act attributed to his habit of smoking something which youthful friends called muggles, a childish name for marijuana. The article claimed that the murderer had no recollection of having committed the multiple crimes. The officers knew him ordinarily as a sane, rather quiet young man. Now he was pitifully crazed. Such articles are obviously, by modern standards, laughable especially when a significant percentage of adults since the 1960s have sampled marijuana. Those who have tried the herb know from first-hand experience 
that it doesn't make one pitifully crazed or cause users to kill their families. Dr. William Woodward, a doctor, lawyer, and the legislative counsel to the American Medical Association, testified before Congress at a 1937 hearing to outlaw cannabis, stating that there was no evidence that the herb is dangerous. He warned that prohibition loses sight of the fact that future investigation may show that there are substantial medical uses for cannabis. When the legislation drafted by Anslinger was presented on the floor of the House for a vote, a representative from the upstate New York asked, Mr. Speaker, what is this bill about? The Speaker replied, I don't know. It has something to do with a thing called marijuana. I think it's a narcotic of some kind. The New York representative queried, Mr. Speaker, does the American Medical Association support this bill? A member of the hearing committee interrupted and replied, Their doctor came down here. They support this bill 100%. And thus, with that lie, and despite the efforts of Woodward, one of the two medical doctors to testify before the committee hearings, the actual opposition of the American Medical Association, the U.S. Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 in early August of that year. The cultivation and possession of cannabis and hemp has been illegal in the United States ever since. According to a 2010 article by the Associated Press, after 40 years, the United States' war on drugs has cost $1 trillion and hundreds of thousands of lives. In the past 10 years, $211 million was spent to enforce pot laws in the state of Washington alone, as reported by the American Civil Liberties Union of Washington State. Meanwhile, Hearst, Mellon, and DuPont are all household names more than half a century after the last of the group died. One of the most indicating official statements against marijuana prohibition came ironically from one of the Drug Enforcement Agency's own chief administrative law judges, Francis Young. Young, after a lengthy hearing regarding the efficacy of the herb in 1988, stated, Marijuana in its natural form, is one of the safest therapeutically active substances known. It would be unreasonable, arbitrary, and capricious for the DEA to continue to stand between those sufferers and the benefits of this substance. Despite his strong official opinion, the DEA did not implement his ruling in allowing the rescheduling and testing of marijuana, citing a procedural technicality. And that was an historical perspective of marijuana in the United States by Gooey Rabinsky. And you can get that information on his website, gooeyrabinsky.com. Now, what happens now, now that more states in the United States have either adopted medical marijuana or recreational marijuana? Well, that's a good question. In an interview with President Obama last week, talk show host Bill Maher Ask the president about the marijuana issue. Okay, let me ask you about a question that I know people who watch our show are interested in, right. which is marijuana reform. You, is that something that you care about? It is something I care about. It's <laughs> <laughs> No, we've both made jokes about it, but it's not funny to the people who get arrested, yeah. uh, which is over half a million, I think, last year. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you and I both could have had our lives ruined, not really by smoking it, but by being arrested for it. Right. Um, and, you know, I feel like you had a checklist about let's get rid of a lot of the stupid stuff like opening up Cuba. Right. You know, you came out for gay marriage. Right. 
Uh, I was hoping ending the drug war would be on that list. It's on the ballot now in nine states in a week, including California for recreational and Arizona, and medical in places like North Dakota. Isn't it time the federal government caught up to progressive states like Arizona and North Dakota? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what I'm... I have always believed that to the extent that the society legitimately wants to uh, guard against any kind of substance abuse, that you treat it as a public health problem. Look, I'm an ex-smoker, cigarette smoker. X? X. And really? Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I really did you am. wink or did you get something in no, your eye there? No, I, I it's, thought it's, I caught a wink true. there. Okay. I, uh, uh, I, I'm chewing the heck out of Nicorette. But, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. But uh, no, when I when I passed uh, healthcare reform, that, that was, I think uh, right. I'd had my last cigarette. Um, but but the reason is because there was this enormous public health effort to get kids not to pick up smoking uh, and to make sure the parents felt guilty if if they were passing on that. Uh, that habit to their kids, uh, and I, and so that's where I think we need to go with pot, uh, alcohol, uh, and so, so I don't think that legalization is a panacea, but I think that we're going to have to have a more serious conversation about uh, how we are treating uh, marijuana and our drug laws generally. Uh, the good news is is that after this referendum. To some degree, it's going to call the question, uh, because if, in fact, it passed in all these states, you now have about a fifth of the country that's operating under one set of laws yeah. and four-fifths in another. The Justice Department, DEA, FBI, for them to try to straddle and figure out how they're supposed to enforce laws in some places and not in others, and they're going to uh, guard against uh, transport. Uh, transporting these drugs across state lines, but you know you've got the entire Pacific sure. <laughs> corridor uh, where where this is uh, uh, this is legal. Uh, that is not going to be tenable. Now, it's not something that uh, I think is going to happen overnight. And I think there are some legitimate concerns that people have about how you draw lines on these issues, but. It is indisputable that right now the biggest drug crisis we have is with opioids, many of which are legal and are ravaging uh, entire communities all across the country. And and the, the for us to resort how we think about these problems uh, and not think of everything through the criminal justice lens, but also through the public health lens, I think is something that's going to need to happen. The votes in those nine states referred to were very interesting. California approved recreational use by 56% in favor. Nevada approved recreational use, 54% in favor. Massachusetts approved recreational use, 54% in favor. Uh, Maine approved recreational use, extremely close there, 50.2% in favor. Arizona denied recreational use, 52% against. Arkansas approved medical use, 53% in favor. Florida approved medical use, 71% in favor. Montana approved medical use, 57% in favor. And North Dakota approved medical use by 64% in favor. 
So there you have it, another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, and we'll have another story of a person who has used cannabis and how it has positively impacted their life. Appreciate you listening wherever you are in the world. You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to PodConnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.